Hello and welcome to Getting a Grip, your weekly tennis podcast. We serve up news and opinion on the world of tennis, hopefully without fault. So let us string you along with content from the beloved tennis tour all the way to grassroots tennis. Gives, I guess it gives more, maybe younger players, more, I don't know if hope is the right word, but it gives them a bit more optimism when you see a guy clearly like grind his way into into the the top 10 with no apparent like uh, signature shot you don't see a lot with players of other nationalities maybe that's the way these players are taught maybe that's the attitude of tennis within france especially when they're growing up and and whatnot but you know these trick shots the entertainment value it's it's something we're going to miss uh quite sorely it's very nice to see obviously youngsters rising and, and seeing how that journey progresses because there are a lot of people who you know who dream of reaching the top and it's uh, it's definitely nice to see that journey as it unfolds uh, especially firsthand welcome back to the getting a grip tennis podcast um i am indeed wearing gray again but merlin's looking a little bit more red today after a bit of coaching up in bobby how are we doing yeah, not too bad, thanks. I mean, as you say, my, my face is probably about as red as my jumper right now. Um, that's the that's the nature of an eight or nine hour tennis coaching day. Um, but apart from that, you know, that's a, it's a prime Sunday. Prime Sunday. Yeah, I've been sitting on my arse all day, so I can't really can't really say much. But anyway, let's let's get into some some tennis news. So the main things we've got this week are Cameron Norrie breaking into the top ten for the first time. Um, we've also got Songa retiring after the French Open, which is you know a little bit sad. We'll be talking about our our memories of him, some of the historical matches that he's been involved in, and then we'll hopefully touch a little bit on what's going on in the junior scene, at least locally in Devon. But yes, first first off here in Britain, we've got uh, Cameron Norrie. Obviously, the last year or two, he's kind of really risen up the rankings he's now made the top 10 in the world rankings um yeah i don't don't think he he's kind of flown under the radar a little bit compared to you know like dan evans obviously been in the news for various reasons and there's always a lot of attention on him and andy murray of course merlin's merlin's favorite um and his kind of battles against injury but yeah cameron norris sort of snuck under the radar a bit um but yeah he's cracked the top 10 how, how long we see him staying there for i guess is a topic for discussion but uh would you say you're you're surprised that he has made it this far given maybe his ta- perceived talent compared to other other players or is this kind of yeah something that you've expected for a while now oh i've definitely been expecting it over the past year um you'll see last year he had a he had a really incredible run uh putting together like lots of good results uh his indian wells win for example last year um yeah i think uh i think he's a player that i've been watching for quite a while now um and and a a player that i'm excited to say that i've been watching because he's not as you were saying as you alluded to like he's not a talent as it were obviously he's got some knack to tennis otherwise he wouldn't be top 10 in the world but you know he's he's clearly a hard worker he doesn't have these um you know, incredible touches that say like Kyrgios has or or that we see from you know some of our big four and whatnot but you know and this is where you know I'm going to bring it back to uh, my man Andy um, it's 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 kind of the case of you know 
these British players being hard workers, taking it to a grinding area, uh, you know, that sort of baseline game. Um, yeah, just very excited. I quite like Norrie's game. I'm not a huge fan of his backhand, but it's effective. Yeah. It's not pretty, but it's effective. So, you know, that's what you've got to go with. A bit of a shovel, isn't it? I don't really know how to describe it. I mean, it, it's consistent enough, so can't really this is it, yeah. knock it too much. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's good, though. It gives... I guess it gives more maybe younger players more I don't know if hope is mm. the right word but it gives them a bit more optimism when you see <clears> a guy clearly like grind his way into into the the top 10 with no yeah. a, apparent like uh, signature shot or whatever you know you talk about like Nadal with his forehand or that some of these big guys with their serves or Federer with his forehand um you tend to kind of almost romanticize it a little bit when you look at a lot of these players and yeah. certain strokes they have you're like oh yeah there's no way like i could replicate that or this you know it's just like you said some of it is genetic but it when you see a guy like cam norrie is there's nothing that particularly stands out and that's not necessarily a criticism it's just it's more of a reason for hope or an actual compliment really given that i think yeah, it's, it's a i think it's a mark of the times if i if i'm going to say that uh, you know like we're we're very much in a period of tennis history where someone with a weapon isn't necessarily going to be the winner you know the the people that have stayed at the top and won at the top for the longest djokovic being a key example they've been good at everything and you have to be an all-rounder these days um, it would be i think a bit unfair to say that nori is a jack of all trades master of none um, but like I say, you know, he's he's got a he's got a consistent level across you know the the whole of his game makes him harder to target, but at the same time it makes him slightly more prone to um, you know shows of form. So if if someone's on top form at a certain time, um, as we know a couple of players are at the moment, then you know he might fall prey prey to that because he doesn't quite have a weapon to then battle against uh, that sort of form. So, you know, it's it's consistent for the tour, but I don't necessarily think we'll see him winning anything big anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's... Consistency is, yeah, definitely the word you would associate with him. And you're right, there is nothing... There's no particular area to target. Um, a lot of these players who have, like, yeah, these signature shots or whatever, that you can still get at them in other ways, whereas with his game, it's just more kind of like yeah well-rounded he he just to me when i watch him he just seems to he knows where to put the ball he just makes the right decision he's a placer yeah yeah and he just puts it where the opponent doesn't want it basically and then he'll just he would wear them down mentally um until they until they crack basically so yeah i think yeah he he was still that like, he has won um fairly big events but yeah it, oh yeah said, for, big, he, for big events yeah if he comes up against someone in red hot form then it, he, he then doesn't have you know that standout kind of weapon to mm. maybe counteract that so yeah but yeah I, I don't see him going any anywhere anytime soon to be honest just continue the, the way he's going um he he'll hang around the top 20 i think for for a fairly long time so yeah, yeah. well done well done to him and, and his team so obviously we've had the Recent announcement that Songa will be hanging up his tennis shoes after the French Open. Very, very sad for us, you know. Anyone who's watched tennis for at least, I don't know, five, ten years will probably have some, some good memories of Songa. I think for me particularly, um, not even in terms of tournaments that he's won, but I remember that Wimbledon quarterfinal that he played against Federer. I think it was 
it was like 2011 or something and he was Federer was two sets to love up and uh, you know everyone just thought it was a formality and he just he just kept going kept believing and managed to come back from two sets down to knock Federer out at Wimbledon which you know not many players can say and obviously he did it with his usual you know effervescence and lovely like kind of trick shots that he's got and just like crazy athleticism yeah what are your what are your memories of Songa? Uh, he's just another example of French artistry. And this is what I love about watching most French tennis players. You know, you've got the likes of uh, Richard Gasquet and, and Gaël Monfils. You know, these players bring a certain beauty to one. the game. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like they, they do. They bring, a, they bring a certain beauty to the game, which you don't see a lot with players of other nationalities. Maybe that's the way these players are taught. Maybe that's the attitude of tennis within France, especially when they're growing up and, and whatnot. But, you know, these trick shots, the entertainment value, it's it's something we're going to miss uh, quite sorely. Um, you know, and, and one of the big things he used to do is he had a celebration at the end of a match. Like, you knew what you were going to get. If Songa won a match, he'd do his usual celebration, pumping his fists mm. as he spins around. It, it, yeah, like I say, it, it really helps you to fall in love with a character when you have uh, some of these sorts of, you know, well, defining characteristics, effectively. Yeah, just just a bit of personality, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I suppose having talked about Cameron Norrie and now talking about Songa, it's yeah, like Norrie's got the he's obviously worked incredibly hard, but he's I don't know, he hasn't necessarily got the the big personality or whatever that some players have. And you, you've got there's tennis caters to all you know different different characters, but it's always nice to have some players that yeah really kind of show their emotions in a good way on the court yeah. um, and sometimes in a bad way but <laughs> um but yeah you're right yeah. and the artistry as well like you said the artistry is there there is room for it even in this kind of highly technical analytical oh, sure. age that we live in but yeah it's always nice to see a little bit of artistry and kind of creativity almost on the court yeah no i, I think you're completely right and to be honest my reaction to songa you know leaving the tour it it feels a little bit feels a little bit subdued because it's not like he's been playing at the top level the last couple of years uh, necessarily. Like, he's been around, he's been playing uh, in certain tournaments and whatnot, but, you know, like, we haven't seen much of him. And and the same was the case with, uh, with Burdick before he left the game. And he's all these players that used to be, you know, the top 20, top 30, they'd, they'd float around whilst the big four were just sculpting tournaments and whatnot. So, yeah, like I say, it, it's very, very sad. Um but uh, it's not exactly a surprise. No, hopefully he can, you know, win at least at least one match for the for the home crowd when the French Open starts. But yeah, that I, would I, be nice. I've just checked. I mean, he's thirty six. I suppose <laughs> Nadal, Etal are still, you know, playing at a, an incredible level at that age. But you know, still thirty six is a, a very impressive career, long stint. So yeah, for sure. And as you said, he's kind of yeah. Yes, there's not been a lot kind of of news around him or any or much coverage around him for a while. I can't really recall any massive like deep runs that he's made recently. There'll probably be something that I've forgotten, but there's not yeah, there's nothing that really jumps out. So yeah, I just hope he can give give the crowd like some last bit of fun, you know, maybe one match first round victory. Parting gift. Yeah. A bit of a bit of effervescence, a bit of personality again would would be nice. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just makes us. Maybe it makes me feel old because I'm like players that you grow up watching are just starting to retire, and it's just like, oh god, 
Yeah, he was always a big name for the big matches. You know, you knew you were going to get a good a good show if any of the big four were coming up against him or any of the top ten. You know, it was one of the ones to watch. So, um, yeah, it would definitely be missed for that, for that pizzazz. Okay, so something slightly different this week. Um, aside from the, the regular mainstream kind of news, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on in junior circles, at least locally, in the kind of Devon-ish area. So Merlin's got some updates from juniors that are playing in Bovi at the moment. Um, how, how, have, how have the guys been getting on? Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting time. I think it's nice to talk about something other than mainstream and, you know, professional tennis because, you know, a lot of people uh, who like to listen to these sorts of podcasts uh, and who like to play tennis, you know, they're, they're not playing at the top of the sport or anything like that, but they are enjoying tennis. Um, but it is very nice to see, obviously, youngsters rising and, and seeing how that journey progresses because there are a lot of people who, you know, who dream of reaching the top and it's, uh, it's definitely nice to see that journey as it unfolds, uh, especially firsthand. So yeah, our, our club, Bobby Tracy, um, you know, sort of set at the edge of Dartmoor. Uh, this is down in Devon, uh, in England. But you know, we've got uh, we've got a head coach who uh, pushes forwards on a lot of performance related areas. Uh, one of the things that he recently won was uh, Southwest uh, Performance Coach of the Year by the LTA, um, and he was shortlisted for the National Performance Coach of the Year. So, like I say, he's he's done an incredible job bringing a lot of these juniors on. One of those juniors, uh, I won't say any names for now, uh, but one of these juniors who plays uh, uh, basically in the under-14 circuit, uh, he's reached uh, top 30 in the country for um, the under-14 circuit as well. Uh, so this is the whole of uh, England. But he's starting to play in some European qualifiers, so he's got one of those coming up very, very soon, uh, and starting to play a lot of national tournaments. And there's a lot of success here, and it, it does come down to the fact that you know, you have to make deep runs in tournaments and you have to pick up points in order to solidify those rankings. And one of the harshest things about tennis, uh, especially at this level, where you're starting to build something that could turn into a professional career, is very much the fact that it's expensive. So, you know, it's it's an area worth discussing because the price of tennis is is very, very, very costly. And especially for people who, you know, at a younger age, their parents might not necessarily have all the answers at each moment. So, like I said, the LTA does some funding, but I would call that inadequate. Um, but, yeah, like I say, it's, it's all about trying to support that journey. So one of the things that our club do is we, we have a pot of money which we set aside for promising young juniors. Um, this is a very recent uh, development but uh, no very important to, to try and progress these journeys on and this is something that grassroots tennis should be doing a lot more of all across the country all across the world yeah i, I think i spoke to the, uh, the guy i was getting coached by this italian guy um in one of our sessions and he was talking about how they've raised in italy they've raised the prize money and like a lot of the challenges and stuff and they're seeing yeah. even just from that like a lot more players coming through now um, the likes of, you know, like Sinner, etc., that have benefited yeah. from that. And, yeah, it would be nice to see more funding at least going towards, you know, covering, I don't know, travel costs or accommodation costs, just things like that that would make a massive difference and make it more accessible to just a wider range of people from different backgrounds, I think. Well, this is exactly it. Re representation is still very poorly um, sculpted, especially in, in England and whatnot. So... 
you know, it's a really important issue to raise. And in order to do that, you do have to funnel the money in. Uh, where does that money come from? Good question. I would argue the LTA, they don't do a very good job of funneling it down uh, into grassroots tennis, despite they might argue that they are. Um, I don't really know how this goes in other countries, but as you say, like, you know, especially in Italy, for example, you know, if you increase the prize money, you know, if you've got kids that are winning, kids that are showing their talent at these lower level tournaments, are starting to build on professional careers, then obviously it's going to be more financially viable for them. Um, but yeah, that, like I say, that, that funding needs to be uh, indiscriminate to begin with. Yeah, I think I think that's something we can we can talk about more as, as we bring this up in like future episodes. Yeah, um, I'm hoping that this will be a, a fairly regular section to talk about because uh, as we we all live and breathe grassroots tennis, we won't just talk about young promising juniors, but I think it's important to talk about um, you know just helpful little things that will get us enjoying the game and and things that we can all do to to really improve our game. Okay, it's round, I think, six of tennis trivia this week. So it's my turn to answer the questions and Merlin's turn to grill me on my lack of tennis knowledge. Well, we had a uh, we had a record win last week, didn't we, Ben? I think I remember a record win being recorded. Uh, yeah. Is that, forgot, is that I, right? I may have forgotten to mention that, but yeah, Merlin did. Yeah, yeah well, I'm going to mention it. Yeah, solid <laughs> four out of five. I think... Uh, I think you've really got your money cut out for you. Uh, you've got to, got to try and raise the bar a little bit. <clears throat> but hopefully it's a, the first of some more consistent results across the board. Right. But anyway, so the questions today are a little different. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the quirks that players have, but also, um, you know, as we were talking in the grassroots section just before, talking about representation, it's important to make sure that we, we talk about players all the way across the board, not just our favourites. I can't just talk about Andy Murray all day long, as much as I'd love to. And I can't talk about Federer, sadly. No, Well, I won't exactly. be able to anyway soon, so... So I'm going to start you off with a nice easy one, or at least a nice easy one in terms of it's a simple question, not much to think about. Who was the first Afro-American Wimbledon winner, Grand Slam Wimbledon winner? Uh, on the female side and your options include these four Althea Gibson Serena Williams Venus Williams and Coco Goff I think it's the the first option Althea Gibson I seem to recall when I was doing my research last week seeing that name come up so I'm going to go with that one you're going to go with A Althea Gibson I am you are correct. Well done. So that's one out of one so far. Yes, Althea Gibson was the first Afro-American uh, winner of the female grand, uh, well, the female side of uh, the Grand Slam. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the history when it comes to men's tennis, uh, when it comes mm. to uh, Afro-American wins, but you know that's something that will hopefully change over the next 50 years in the Open era, uh, where we start to see more representation. Um, so but like I say, that's something 19, that we can go away and have a look. 1956, I think. Is, uh, yeah. Uh, shoot that. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. You've got good knowledge there. No, I just Googled it. <clears throat> I see. Okay. Anyway, uh, so what we'll do is we'll stay on the similar topic with the women's side of tennis, but we're actually going to take a little segue from tennis. So this is about a tennis player, but her, let's say, activities outside of tennis. Which Russian player won her third straight Porsche Grand Prix 
in 2014. Your four options include Svetlana Kuznetsova, Maria Sharapova, Elena Vesnina, and Vera Zvonareva. Porsche Grand Prix. Wait, so this, this person is involved this is that person like rally car on their third straight porsche grand prix but what actually is that is it just like a rally car race or something yeah effectively effectively mm. can you wait can you list the names again i feel like one so of your your options are svetlana kuznetsova maria sharapova elena vesnina and vera zvonareva i really hope i've said these right um, I'd like okay. to think I have. Yeah, it sounds okay. Um, I, I'm thinking yes. either the first or the fourth one. But I mean, I really don't have much of a clue. Um, I'm gonna go with. I'll I'll, I'll go with Kuznetsova because I don't know. She seems like that kind of character, but I really have nothing to go off. Get a grip. The answer is Maria Sharapova. So as well really? as being as well as being a star wow. tennis player, your shock is your shock is registered. Uh, as well as being a star tennis player, she is also a star racer. Um, the interesting thing is this: this joins uh, a host of different players from all sports who tend to find a talent in other sports fairly easily. And there is a good argument that suggests, uh, and you'll probably know this from uh, the sports science world, that once you become quite proficient in one sport you find it very easy to pick up other sports because movement and processing is all very similar so they find the same with footballers who take up tennis or tennis players uh, who decide to play golf or for example footballers who take up golf in the off season when they're injured Gareth Bale is a good example when Real Madrid decided not to play him I he mean, almost became a pro golfer I think he's basically a full-time golfer and a part-time footballer these days Exactly, exactly. So, the, you know, there's all these possibilities. Uh, you've got Ash Barty as well, who's recently retired from tennis, uh, and clearly she's going to make some success out of her cricket. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be a very interesting world, and I think you're going to see a lot more of this, a lot more of uh, cross-sport participation from these talented individuals, uh, which will be very interesting, especially as people's careers are being elongated. We all know that people don't like to stick at the same career their entire lifetime. I think I still think that's a bit of a sh bit of a shafty question that because it's not it's not that I have wide ranging tennis knowledge but that is is not exactly a tennis specific it's, question. It's it's about that. a tennis player, oh, so that's a little bit naughty. But we'll, we'll I think it's it. very interesting. Cool. That's mostly for the topic. Answer, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mostly for the topic of obviously this this multi sported t uh, talent that uh, occurs. Anyway, we're now going to move on to uh, a slightly different question. We're going to go towards uh, the nickname of a particular player. So which tennis player was nicknamed The Rocket? And your four options here include Boris Becker, Tim Henman, Andy Roddick, or Rod Laver. Yeah, I got this one in the bag. I, knew, I didn't even need... I didn't even need the multiple choice answers. <laughs> I actually know this one. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Rod the Rocket Laver. There you go. Well done. Yes, of course oh, you've got this right. I think it's very important to uh, acknowledge it. Yeah, that 
probably might have been an easy question. Uh, something I thought I'd throw in there for you because of the question prior to this. Uh, but yes, Rod Laver, back in his heyday, was known as the Rocket. Ben, do you know why he was named the Rocket? I don't. I can speculate that maybe it's because either he was really fast or he had like a big forehand or something. But what is it? A little bit of a combination of both, but yes, it was it was largely due to his speed, uh, at least from what I've read. Uh, I haven't watched a huge degree of his tennis because obviously way before my time. Yeah. But no, I think uh, very interesting. Uh, and something I'd like to see a little bit more of in tennis again. You know, nicknames are not something that we come across very often. Yeah, it seems to be like a, it's a thing in like boxing and the fighting world because it's all about kind of presenting this personality or whatever. But yeah, you don't exactly. see it very often in tennis. But tennis is a very singular battle. People, you know, pitting themselves against each other. So, you know, very much like boxing. I think this should very much become part of it again. Anyway, we're now going to move on. We're going we're gonna to slide back into some women's tennis knowledge. Uh, and hopefully you'll have... Uh, well, hopefully you enjoy this part of history, but it's a nice, short, brief one. What year were the ladies' singles events first introduced at Wimbledon? Your options include 1875, 1884, 1887, and 1901. So, this is, sorry, this is ladies' singles at, did you say at Wimbledon or... At Wimbledon, yeah. So I seem to recall from my research last week that Wimbledon first started in 1877. So what were the options again? 1875, 84, 87 and 1901. Mm. See, the cynic in me, because of the stuff about prize money last week, would think, Maybe the people running Wimbledon were not too fond of female, I don't know, participation. So that makes well, me think... Well, just progressive be, change. Yeah, or just yeah, just yeah, being up to date with the times. So that makes me kind of lean towards a later time. I'm going to go with hmm, either 87 or 01. I'll go with 1901. Get a grip. The right answer was 1884. So it was actually fairly soon after the men's events even started, obviously being uh, you know, in the late 70s, 1870s, I should say. Um, but yes, uh, good, good example of where the question could have easily been another answer, as you rightly say. Um, Tennis is one of those sports that has been accused of not exactly being the most progressive, especially in recent times. Um, but no, it turns out that Wimbledon did introduce uh, the women's singles title quite early on. Well, well, that's good to know, but that also means I can't win this week. <laughs> it also means you can't win. So I'm very happy about that. Which brings me to our final question for a little bit of fun. Some players are a little bit quirky, and some players do odd things on court in order to ensure they win. Rafael Nadal is very known for this. The direction he points the label on his bottle must line up with the direction he is serving, and he also organises his things meticulously, especially um, all of his drinks and whatnot. And, he and you'll also notice on the lines as well. Walks on the lines, uh, clears the lines on the clay court. Uh, but like I say, when you're a top tennis player, these superstitions don't just become superstitions anymore. 
they become the reason you're winning. And if you change anything, then potentially you might not win. So obviously you're not going to change something that's working, are you? Even if it might not be a contributing factor. Um, interestingly, Andy Murray as well can't wear his wedding ring on his finger, so he wears his wedding ring tied to his shoelace, uh, which also led to him recently having a very entertaining story where he lost his wedding ring in a hotel, um, and obviously uh, they had to go and find it uh, after he left the shoes underneath his car. <laughs> I think this was over in America. It was just to leave, like he was just trying to dry them out. I love, I love that. Just trying to dry them out. Yeah, when you've got a few pairs of tech trainers and you play elite tennis, you're going to have some sweaty shoes. You need to dry them out. Anyway, let's go to the question. What did Ivan Lendl keep in his pocket during tournaments? Your four options include a lucky penny, a ball, sawdust, or his hand. I thought you'd like that last option. <laughs> like, that I was not expecting that as the last option to be. His hand. <laughs> I always. Well, he may have been a very casual player. Who knows? Yeah. What were the options again? <laughs> don't say the last one. A lucky penny, a ball, sawdust, or his hand. Hmm. <laughs> I'd, a ball would just be. This seems rather strange, unless it's like a. A ball really would be ball. reasonable, no. Yeah, but is it a tennis ball? Is it just some other like lucky little? I don't know, one of those little bouncy balls or something. Um, sawdust. Oh, this is a bit weird. Don't really know what function that would serve, or there wouldn't be any kind of uh, sentimentality to that. I don't think. Uh, what was the first one? Was a penny, wasn't it? I feel like that would just. Sure, that would just fly out during a rally or something. Mm. Um, hmm. I am actually torn between sawdust for some reason and a ball because it could be like a small ball, maybe. Well, I mean, I suppose it could be a tennis ball, but it seems a bit counterproductive that, given that you won't be able to use it. I'll go. I'll go with sawdust. I don't have a clue again. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to have a clue. Am I? That's a very, that's a very neat. Is your knowledge. final answer sawdust? God, the way you've said it now, I'm not too keen on that answer. I'll go with it anyway. Go with, go with your gut. Congratulations, you've got the answer correct. Oh wow! Even Lendl did in fact keep sawdust in his pocket during tournaments. There are a lot of, there's a lot of speculation as to why. Obviously, it's uh, much like chalk for climbers. It might be one of these examples where, obviously, his hand might be getting sweaty. So he, he grabs some sawdust uh, to put on the grip, and obviously that would uh, ensure that, obviously, he maintains a drier grip. But, like I say, there are downsides to some of these things. Rafael Nadal takes a very long time when he starts uh, a setup because of all of his routines of touching his face. But and other areas. He's touching his face <laughs> and his ears, yeah, yeah, and his ears, yeah, that's right. And Ivan Lendl often got accused of needing to be cleaned up because the sawdust was all over the court, and obviously other players weren't necessarily a fan of that when they got, went to the other side. Ah, interesting. So I've got, what did I get, three out of five? That's respectable. A respectable think... three out of five, but not a winning three out of five. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Oh, a three out of five is like a, I think that's a good kind of minimum. Any three and above is respectable, yeah.
but obviously it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not up to your standards. Obviously, I'm going to have to make the questions more difficult next time or just really left field like you've done for me. I thought my questions were actually quite reasonable. I just, yeah, they were just a bit more odd. Yeah, maybe I'm just, I'm just an idiot, I think. That's what it is. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for watching this week's episode of the Getting a Grip podcast. If you have liked it, then give it a follow if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And obviously, if you're on YouTube, yeah, give it a like, share it around, and subscribe if you so wish to do so. And we'll see you in the next one.